This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to the Human Animal Connection Show, where we believe we can communicate with all animals. Join us as we explore the 33 principles and healing methods of the Human Animal Connection. As animal lovers, we know that you share our commitment to making the world a kinder place for all creatures. Together, let's embrace the transformative healing power of the Human Animal Connection. Hi, welcome back to Human Animal Connection Show. I'm your host, Mike Overly, and I'm with Jeannie Joseph, PhD. Woohoo! <laughs> Here we go. So, Jeannie, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about principle number seven in the Human-Animal Connection, and you can read them all in my book, a book by the same title, The Human-Animal Connection. And this is about the language of touch connection. So how touch is a language and how touch connects us, not only with other people, but also with ourselves. So that's what we're going to be talking about in it. When I, as you know, I've worked with over 4,000 service members, and what I find is that cuddles from animals can really combat the sense of isolation that people with PTSD feel, who feel very isolated. And so the animals can really touch them in a place that they're not going to allow another human being to touch them in. You know, and I'm not referring to a physical place. I'm referring to an emotional place, like their heart <laughs> in yeah. emotional terms. Yeah. Yeah. That's in my dogs and men coaching practice. That is uh, the key, right? The, <laughs> the bond between that animal and that man. Um, maybe deeper and more intimate, not in a sexual way, but intimate where the man can't have this relationship with other people in his life. Right. But but that dog is there in that spot. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, and so this is not about saying that we don't need our human relationships because of course we do, we're human. But there is a way in which connecting with animals can help us feel touched in a way that you know, we don't always have with humans, even if we're sharing a life with a human, maybe we're getting some touch, maybe we're, you know, but sexual touch is just one kind of touch, you know, so there's another kind of touch that we need. And that is just the pure, energetic, nurturing, sweetness of touch. And that's what we're talking about in this principle. Yeah, I love that. And I actually didn't used to know the difference when I was younger, right? I just knew what I thought I knew, and I didn't realize that there was there was variations on the thing. Yeah, I oh. you know, in 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 some cultures are much more touch intensive. You know, like touch is a part of their life every day, and they're going to be touching lots of people, and there's you know hugs and and you know just nice contact all day long. And other cultures less so. And in the Western culture, we're in the less so category, you know. Um, there's been some interesting studies to show that in the Western cultures are, are very light, very light on touch. And other cultures are, you know, warmer cultures or cultures that are more connected to the natural world and the earth are more touch intensive. Like, the, you know, in Bali, for example, they believe you shouldn't put a baby down on the ground ever for the first year. You know, they're just always being held. So, you know, but they're being passed. They're not being held by the same mother. They're being passed to an aunt or a sister or your sibling or whatever, or father, whatever it is. They're, they're getting a lot of touch, uh, very early in life. And that's a very good thing. I wanted to ask you about, um, you have a story about a shelter dog that was afraid of touch. Yes. And I think his name was Buff. 
He has shelter name buff, terrible name, didn't help him at all getting adopted. <laughs> you know, he was a he was a pity mix, you know, real sweetie, real sweetie, terrified of everything, you know, terrified of people, couldn't make eye contact, didn't want to be touched. And I was volunteering at the shelter here, um, uh, PAC, Pima Animal Care Center, which is a municipal shelter. They have right now over 500 dogs in a shelter built for 200. So that just tells you some idea what's going on there. But the wonderful thing about Pima, one of the one, one of the many wonderful things about this shelter at PAC is that they do what's called doggy play groups. And they allow the dogs to play together. And they're very good at it. They evaluate play styles. So they're not going to put a gentle and dainty dog in with a rough and rowdy dog. So they separate them by play styles. But once they've then they take very good notes, you know, this dog likes all dogs or this dog is dog selective, you know, they, they are terrific at understanding uh, how dogs manage. And some dogs have very good social cues and know how to say to other dogs, hey, I'm nice. I want to play. Let's play. Let's play the rough and tumble. And they can, you know, look what looks like a wrestling match, but they're having so much fun. And other dogs, they don't want to play like that, you know. So it's really important to understand these differences in temperament and play style. So there was this dog there in, in the yard, and it was a kind of a fun play group, a lot of chasing and rough and rowdy, what we call rough and rowdy, which is kind of like that Greco-Roman wrestling kind of stuff. And this dog was just cowering in the corner, like in a, you know, the fence, the 90 degree, you know, just so scared of everything. And I was maybe about 30 feet away on the other side of the fence. So I was outside the the thing because we don't go in when the dogs are playing. We want to let them have as much I mean, there are humans in there that are running the play group, but we don't want to have a lot of extra people so that they can put their attention on each other instead of trying to engage with us. So I was on the outside of the fence and I, I realized that this dog was terrified and I started doing energy work with him and just, you know, not looking at him, just, just quietly. Nobody knew what I was doing. It just looked like I was maybe being peaceful. And after about 20 minutes, this dog could feel that there was something over there that was good that he wanted and he decided to brave the walk across because he had to make a, a perpendicular you know a turn you know across this whole yard of kind of energetic dogs to get to me which he did he he made the walk and all these dogs came running at him and you know who are you what are you doing oh you're finally coming out to play let's play let's play but he made it over to me and he just put himself parked himself right against the chain link fence where I could just kind of put my fingers to the fence and give him a little bit of touch and we just did this energy healing work for about 20 minutes you know and then he, he had to go back but um after that I realized okay this dog has let me know that he wants some help and so I went every day to work with him and began working on helping him begin to trust eye contact, which I think we've talked about in another episode, how we do that. And it helped him get to the point where he could really look at me and enjoy looking at me. Like he chose to look at me. It wasn't like I was making him look at me. And I began doing touch healing with him and he just began to love it. And I began taking him out. He was really scared. You know, I'd take him out for an ice cream at the shelter. It's a wonderful program. You can take them out for an ice cream or hamburger, you know, <laughs> you know, just a little get out of the shelter for a little bit. And uh, I would begin doing this. And then I began taking him home after those, you know, for an evening. It was so very sweet. And he's just so wonderful. And I kept working with him. And when I brought him home the first time and he was out in the yard with my dog, um, just watching him 
make his own choices, like whether to go sit on this side or sit in the shade or move over here or go pee or go smell or go have some water or just, you know, all the different choices. He made like 12 choices in the first half hour. That begins to help his brain get back online. It begins to be curiosity is the one of the anecdotes of fear. And so to put him in a place where he can be curious, where he can choose, I'm going to lay down, I'm going to walk, I'm going to move, I'm going to do this, all these little tiny little choices, which are seem inconsequential, just seems like a dog just being a dog, but those are really good for his brain. And after about a half an hour of this, he was ready to come inside and have the massage, the healing touch that I do. And so I began working with him. And after a couple of weeks, he became my demonstration dog in the class I do at the shelter called Soothing Touch for Animals. And it's just a demonstration of, you know, how to touch dogs to help them to calm their nervous system and to help them regulate their emotions. And he was my demonstration dog on the table with Sophia. So it was just wonderful. And then, of course, I was just within an inch of adopting him and myself when he got adopted, which is wonderful. I'm so happy. But, uh, you know, he was unadoptable before that because he wouldn't make any eye contact and he wouldn't engage with humans. So people would just pass him by. You know, he would just, and, you know, in a shelter of 500 dogs, getting passed by is pretty easy. So you really have to stand out as like, hey, I'm cute. I'm loving. I'm happy. I'm, you know, you know I love you. Take me home. You know, they have to be able to do that. Otherwise, they're just going to get passed over. Yay, buff. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about touch and the power of touch. So what does science say about this? And there, there's an example regarding chimpanzees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really great that, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't talk about this in science circles, but now it's like, yeah, touch is really essential for the growth of all beings, human babies, uh, animal babies, every kind of baby needs touch. And you'll see puppies all sleeping in a pile or, or you know, uh, huddling up in a pile. And there's a lot of touch that goes on. And it, sometimes it's just brief touch. It might be huddle up and, and, you know, be in a puddle of puppies and then it's go off and do things. So it's not a continuous thing. It's the notion of the rhythm of touch, which is also important. But there were some studies done, which I think are really horrible, but they did teach us a lot, and they um, uh, separated baby chimpanzees from their mothers too young, when they were too young to be separated, and they gave them a choice, a wire mother, uh, uh, you know, a mother made of wire that gave milk, or a cloth mother that gave no milk, but was you could cuddle and cling to it. And the babies would choose the, the cloth, cuddly, soft mother over the food. You know, and this could be life threatening because they, they, it was like, you know, they, they were literally, it was so important to be, to be touched. And so, the, unfortunately, the study was reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. And, but, it, you know, it was good for science, not good for those poor little babies. If you see those pictures in the 60s, the, the chimps look just terrified. So, these little babies, so pretty brutal experiment. And I'm not, not in favor of it, but we did learn how important it was. And then when we saw that with orphan babies in Romania, I think it was. You know, babies that were touch deprived often died. You know, that was it was not enough to just feed them the nutrients. They needed that, of course. They need that, but they also need the touch. And seeing how important touch is developmentally, and a lot of the when, when clients call me with problem dogs, I often find out that they were taken from their mother too soon, or they didn't get what they needed in that maternal environment, and that creates a lot of later life behavior problems that show up with, you know, really some crazy behaviors. And I am working on my concept of what I call repuppying, which is basically to replace, replace some of those experiences that a puppy would have gotten um, from their mother and from the litter. And it's, it's not 
it's I'm still a work in progress. I'm still working on it, but at least to the degree that I'm able to do it, I find that it 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 does turn things around. So shelter dogs even you know need this kind of like I call it the human thundershirt, where we just um, in contact. I'm not petting, but we're just kind of pressed against each other. And ideally, we want the animal to choose. I'm not going to choose. I'm not going to necessarily choose that. I might do it the first time. I might choose, but after that, I want the dog to choose to lean against me because they're going to set the pace of when they want to lean and connect and when they want to move on and do something else, which is a good thing. I'm really happy when I see them, they'll, they'll come and hang and cuddle for five or 10 or sometimes 15 or 20 minutes. And then they're done. They've gotten their full, like their touch, their touch, their touch um, uh, tank is full in that moment, not, not full forever, but it's full in that moment. And then that allows them to go explore or they want to go for a walk or they want to have a treat or they want to do play with a toy. So and that's just great because we want to see that alternation of contact and non-contact and we want the being to choose it for themselves. What is the difference between giving touch versus taking touch? Yes. That's one of our principles in the human-animal connection. We talk about the power of that. And taking touches, you'll see people on automatic, they're kind of petting their dog like, uh, 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 you know, just like this kind of, they're not, you know, they're thinking about their, they're doing their, on their computer and they're petting their dog with one hand. You know, it's not, they're not really connecting with their dog. You know, it's kind of on autopilot. I call that taking touch. And it's really, sometimes you'll see humans do that for their own needs, you know, their need to have touch and they're just, touching but they're in a taking mode and giving touch is different giving touch really includes the opinion of the being being touched so that means i am only touching sophia in ways that she wants to be touched for as long as she wants to be touched and how she wants to be touched the minute she is done i'm done and then we'll the next hour or the next day, we're going to do it all over again. But in that moment, she's had enough. And if you've ever shared your life with a cat, you know that you need to pay attention to this because they'll cuddle and cuddle and love and love and love. And then they're done. And if you don't get it, you're going to get a whap. (laughs) Right? So they are very good at letting you know when they're full, when their touch tank is full and using the metaphor like a gas tank. So it's like you can have an empty touch tank, you can have a full gas touch tank you can have a halfway you know it's changing all the time it's not like a personality thing it's like where we are in the moment and more stress our tank might be low and when we're feeling calm and peaceful our tank might be pretty high so this is something that i encourage humans to do is to pay attention to what does it feel like to give touch meaning does my dog or whoever you're working with a donkey like my touch as much as i like it it should feel as good to me as it feels the donkey and or the dog or whoever you're touching. And that's what I mean by giving touch is we're really in the flow of mutual good experience. Hey, let's, let's take a quick break here. Hey friends, if you like what you're hearing and want to learn more, check out Dr. Joseph's book, The Human-Animal Connection, Deepening Relationships with Animals and Ourselves, or visit the website thehumananimalconnection.org to book an online consultation. Thank you for loving animals. Now back to the show. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Hey, welcome back to the Human Animal Connection show. So we've gone over some great stuff around touch and love and the power of touch and giving touch versus taking touch. 
um, there's there was an Italian study that was done, and yeah. how what did that show or what did that say about how dogs respond to touch? So they did a study of you know we all if you have a sh- share your life with a dog you know that moment when you're leaving and the dog wasn't doesn't want you to leave and you know there's some energy around that some emotions around that and we're conflicted because we know we need to leave and we feel the dog doesn't want us to leave and be left right. <laughs> So this Italian study was looking at that exact situation. And what they did was they said, well, what happens if the owner spends about 30 seconds before they leave and just acknowledging the dog, maybe petting the dog, talking to the dog, looking at the dog, just having a dog moment for about 30 seconds, and then they leave. And what they did is they looked at heart rate and um, what was it, heart rate and one other thing, I forget. But what they discovered was that the dogs that got this 30 seconds of touching and connection before the person left was able to maintain a lower blood pressure. I think it was and lower heart rate for a a longer period of time. So in other words, they didn't go into that automatic stress response, that separation anxiety. So the moral of the story is that touch has benefits that are beyond words, you know, that they are um, beyond just the moment of the touch that they have enduring qualities in terms of helping the nervous system regulate, meaning get into a calm state, be coherent in the heart math terms. And um, this is something that humans can do when they're leaving is just take a moment. And even if it's 15 seconds, it's just like, okay, okay, Sophia, I'll see you later. Bye-bye, you know, and just give a little ritual that's the same that they can come to expect, okay, this is the ritual, now she's going to leave, okay? And then that helps them to settle in. This is a known thing rather than an unknown thing because remember when we leave, the dog doesn't know we're going to be back in an hour or two hours or six hours or eight hours or whatever it is. They just know you're leaving. So giving them one thing that is familiar in that um process that like some kind of ritual that you do sometimes i'll give her a treat before i leave you know and i say okay i'm leaving now you know <laughs> you know i'll be back oh that's my word i'll be back you know and I, I, does she understand those words literally i don't know but what it is is it creates okay this is this little container called genie's going now and it's going to be okay because this has happened before and so we always want to give dogs some element of predictability when it comes to their fundamental needs and one of their fundamental needs is not to be separated from us so if we as humans have to get separated we're going to do a little thing that just allows them to have some sense of okay i know what this is this is you leaving now i'm going to get treat okay go ahead go bye (laughs) it's okay and so yeah so science is catching up to what we humans are understanding about dogs uh indigo and i have a little ritual when i leave and it's what's your ritual um, we do a couple of things. We go out back, even though we just went for a walk. Right. She wants to go in the backyard and um, I back up to like 38 acres so she can wow. you know, look, look at whoever or whatever's back there. Uh-huh. Um, and then we play a little game of chase. Uh-huh. Right. And then we come back in and then she gets her Kong. Yes. So she has to grab her Kong and go to bed where okay. she goes and lays on her bed in front of the fireplace. And then I just, uh-huh. you know, I say, I'll see you this evening. Great. Yeah. It's beautiful. And yeah. But I'm um, consistent with it so that right. she knows when I say this, this is what happens later. Right. And that helps them. It gives them, that's a pattern that they can recognize. They like to have patterns that they can recognize. They like to have spontaneity. It's not to say they don't need newness, but when these things pertain to their basic well-being, you know, anything that we can do that have patterns like, you know, regular eating time, regular 
kind of hours for when the sleep cycle, you know, the whole nighttime thing happens and, you know, kind of, I mean, it doesn't have to be to the minute, but these things all help the dog to have their, to help their nervous systems have a sense of safety and that allows them to, to really thrive. There's something that you mentioned um, previously, and now it's come back full circle into this Mm -hmm. and it's about um, touch being communication. Yeah. So can you expand on that? Yeah, so touch is one of the one of the many ways and an important way that do- dogs or other animals communicate with each other. So they have touches that mean, "Hey, I want to play and uh, everything's fun and let's let's come on," you know. And they have other touches like "Stay away" and "Leave me alone" and you know different things. So they they uh, have a whole repertoire of what touch means, of which we humans are mostly like clueless about. <laughs> but um, they really use touch in ways that that helps them communicate. So we as humans can use touch in the same way, like I mentioned in the Italian study, that maybe we have a certain way that we touch them when we're leaving, a favorite little scratch spot or whatever. We do a little thing. Sophia has some certain touches that she likes certain times of day, you know, according to what I'm doing, I have to touch her, you know, give her some love and, you know, just little things that, that we do that communicate to them that all is well or that we love them or, um, that everything is fine and that helps their nervous system to be in a calm state. Talking about the, the gas tank, the touch tank. So how do animals help us to feel touch full versus touch empty? So a lot of times we don't realize that we're touch deprived and this can be even true, even if you have a wonderful partner and you're married and all that good stuff, but in lots of times we're not getting the kind of touch that we need because, um, Sexual touch, intimate touch is just one kind of touch, but we also need other kinds of touch. And animals can fill that hole, that emptiness and our sense of like touch hungry, if we're touch hungry. And this, you know, as a culture, we're touch hungry. So if, if you're touch hungry, it's it's not a bad thing. You know, I mean, nothing to be ashamed of is it's a we're a culture of touch deprived people where, you know, especially in today's politically collect correct world. We can't go in and hug people at work and we can't, you know, there's not, you know, if you're a teacher in school, you can't hug the kids anymore. You know, these things, there's a lot of ways in which we are really sensorily touch deprived. And this kind of touch that we need is like the way that an animal touches us, the the love of an animal, the way an animal will lean against us or, or sit on our lap or be close to us and put the rest of their head, their chin on our leg or whatever they want to do. This kind of touch is just really helps fill us in a way that so many other things don't in life. And I'm hoping that people listening to this show share their lives with animals. But, you know, if you don't, this is something that could really help you because, and I really want to encourage people to foster. There are many shelters that need temporary foster, long-term shelter, what long-term fostering where you take an animal home and love them up and help them get out of the shelter environment for a little while and then hopefully get them adopted. And of course, it's hard for some people once they take the animal home, they can't stand, cannot conceive of the idea of bringing them back. And the joke in the rescue world is called foster fails, but that's really a terrible word because there's no failure in loving. (laughs) But animals can really help us to meet this touch need, this touch hunger. And this this touch hunger is, is something that it's mutual touch. It's touch that feels good to us and to the animal. It's not touch that is only good for one side or the other. That's abusive touch when it's good for one side and not the other, or, you know, just autopilot touch where you're not paying attention to how does the other being feel. But when we're paying attention and we're really just 
enjoying, you know, meeting each other through touch, that's a very profound experience. Yeah, it, it's true. I um, we we talked previously about other cultures how they're much more touch um, available. Right? Yes. So, like, I know uh, some Greek friends that have like, and these are guys, but when right. they stand and when they're standing and talking, they're holding hands. Yes, yes, right? yes, there's, yes. There's nothing weird about it. That's just a cultural thing. Right. Um, and people who who you know an arm over each other while they talk or whatever. And right. Yeah, we're so. We're so I think afraid here that that, that something's yeah. going to happen or somebody's going to get upset, um, yeah. and yeah. and we we just separate more and more from that. I think that's too yeah. bad. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, we 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 have to be cautious in today's world. We don't know who wants touch and who doesn't, but but the fact is is that it's gotten way too far on the non-touch side. Do you know what I mean? And so we have to. And animals are one of the ways that we can get this need met and also meet that need for animals because they have the same need and same desire for touch and animals that have been in hoarding situations, they have a real hard time. It's really hard. You can't touch them at first. Like in the shelter, when we bring them in from a hoarding situation, they can't be touched. I mean, they have to be picked up with a towel because they will just go, you know, insane because touch is too traumatizing because they've been in a traumatic situation. So, you know, it's, there's no like one size is right fits all. Everybody's need for touch is unique. Everybody's timing is unique. And touch isn't, there's a rhythm to touch in, in, in healing touch. And you know, when I teach the class Soothing Touch for Animals, I teach this rhythm of touch and non-touch and how we really help to pay attention to when does the animal tell me that they've had enough. And it might just be a head turn. It might be an eye turn. It might be a subtle cue, but that's when they're done. And they may not leave because they want to be nice, but, you know, your dog might just hang out, but you want to pay attention. Is that enough? You know? Yeah. Good. No, I like that. Yeah. The more we can pay attention to those subtle cues, I think, right. um, then we can actually use those skills with people. That's right. In that's our what lives, this is, right? Yeah. Exactly right. I mean, if you're if you're paying attention to what an animal wants or doesn't want, you're getting more likely to pay attention to what a human wants or doesn't want, or how a human wants it, or when the human wants it, or where the human wants it. And so it's it's all good. It's it's not just for animals; it's for humans as well. Oh. Yeah. yeah, we're lucky to have these animals in our lives. Yeah. Hey. Can I tell you a funny story about rocks? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I don't know why I want to tell you the story, but it's in the book and you, people can read the whole story. But in Hawaii, when you go to Hawaii, they tell you, usually on the airline or, you know, whatever, or the visitor package, the hotel, they'll tell you, oh, you know, there's a lot of beautiful rocks here, but, you know, lava rocks or whatever, and they may look beautiful to you. But our advice to you is not to pick them up and move them and don't take them home. Right. So, you know, the tourists all get this information. Don't move the rocks. <laughs> and of course, tourists being tourists, they often ignore this and they will move rocks and take them home. You know, they take home a lava rock as a souvenir of Hawaii, especially if they've been told not to. <laughs> and what happens is all kinds of bad things start happening in their lives and the, they send them back. The post office has all these just rocks, right? People setting rocks back to Hawaii just to try to reverse the, the magic. Right? <laughs> and so the, the, in Hawaii, there's the belief that all life has consciousness. All life has feelings, intentions, desires, and even rocks. And it may be different from the, the desires of your dog or your giraffe, not your giraffe, but a giraffe. Um, but the fact is rocks want to be where they want to be. You know, they're there. They have their, their work that they're doing in their place. And if you move them from their location, they are in a sense homeless, right? And so, 
there's this one kahuna, which means a spiritual teacher in Hawaii. And her particular calling is to help the lost rocks. And she will go to the post office and collect them. And she'll put them in a little circle and she'll meditate, do some healing prayers with them. And she'll ask them, where would you like to be? You know, where, where would you like to be returned? And sometimes it's to the original place, but sometimes it's she can't get there, but she'll ask them where they would like to be. And to the best of her ability, she will return the rocks. Now, she can't keep up with, you know, one person doing this can't keep up with all the rocks sent back to Hawaii. And I know for some people this may, when I was writing this story in my book, my assistant at the time said, I don't think you should put that story in there. That's too weird for people. <laughs> it's one thing to say that animals can have feelings and thoughts, but now you're saying rocks too, you know, that's too far. You should take that out of the book. And I thought about it and I said, well, he's probably right. Some people are not going to be willing to say that rocks have feelings. But if you've lived in Hawaii, I lived there for 25 years, you come to recognize that this native wisdom is more often true than not. You know, that they when they say these things, they mean it. And so, like, even when I came to Arizona and people would be like, I'd be around people and they'd be, oh, this beautiful rock, and they'd pick it up. And I was real careful not to pick up a rock, you know, without asking for permission. If I ask for permission, I get a communication, yes, this rock would like to go home with me, but very, very, very infrequently do I do that because mostly I recognize the rock can be admired and loved and left. <laughs> And that's a discipline, you know, that we think, oh, I love this rock. I want to take it home. It's mine because I love it because I think it's beautiful or it looked nice in my house. Not necessarily so, you know, that, well, you know, maybe that rock has an opinion. What does that rock want? Does that rock want to be moved? Yes or no. And so, you know, Native cultures are much more aware of things like that. And in our kind of materialist culture, we're, we're inclined to think, oh, if I see something beautiful, I could just take it. And that's not necessarily what's best for you or for the rock. And so I know that story may sound uh, out there for some people. And if it's too out there for you, just consider it as a story. But I'm telling you that this happens a lot in Hawaii, that people take the rocks and their life gets chaotic and uh, bad things happen. They send the rocks back and it seems to help. So. <laughs> well, they're not alone in that. So the Iroquois band of, of Native Americans or Indians uh -huh. have a belief that every everything has spiritual energy that yes. emanates from it right, right? and then that's called right. orenda o-r-e-n-d-a in english yeah. um so yeah that's not the as far out there as you think folks yeah so it's just something to consider if it's it's if it's new for you just consider it as a possibility you don't have to believe it just because i said it or michael says it but um it's an interesting thing to contemplate and to being in that uh, respect of all things, uh, all things having their own purpose, intention, and desires leads you to, I think, better behavior with animals and people. Well, Jeannie, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I can't yeah. wait for the next one. Yeah, I know. I, I forgot to look at what's next, but I know it's going to be something good. <laughs> so we'll of course see it you. is. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so thank we'll you so it. much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Aloha for now. Thank you for tuning in to The Human-Animal Connection Show. Please visit our website, thehumananimalconnection.org. There you can sign up for our free email newsletter, book a consultation, or check out our blogs and resources. Our best-selling book, The Human-Animal Connection, is available on Amazon. And your donation of any amount keeps our nonprofit organization providing life-changing services. You can reach Michael Overly, author of Let Your Dog Lead, Musings on How to Create an Exceptional Life, 
on his website at dogsandmen.com or email michael at dogsandmen.com. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.